Hey guys, my name is Alex, and this is the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. I've mentioned here that my favorite YouTuber by a mile is a dude named Steve Donahue, a book critic writing out of Boston, and apart from having had the pleasure of chatting with him over the past couple years, whether through email or through Skype, Steve has also completely changed my reading life by opening my eyes, first of all, to just certain books that I wouldn't have otherwise found, but also by inviting me to write for his online literary journal, which is called Open Letters Review, where on a dozen or so occasions I've scribbled some thoughts about new release movies or a retrospective on some older movie when, a, when an anniversary came around. But the most exciting thing about writing for Steve's journal is that, apart from the free books that he occasionally sends me just because they're up my alley, I can now call up publishers on the fly, and I cite my credentials with Open Letters Review, and I can get myself advanced copies of just about any forthcoming book I want, so long as I agree to review it. I wrote up uh, the filmmaker Don Coscarelli's recent memoir, Pure Indie, and I, I got to write up Brady Stanellis's memoir, White, and the most one of the most recent ones was the concluding volume to Don Winslow's magnificent cartel trilogy, which is called The Border. But by far my most exciting experience uh, writing for Steve was when he sent me an advanced copy a couple years ago of a book called Redwood. Or, more specifically, it was the fifth volume of Mark Z. Danielewski's 27-volume novel, The Familiar. That novel, The Familiar, was, and perhaps somehow still is, slated to unfold over the course of maybe 15 years, with two 800-page volumes being released each year, ideally. The book's got nine central characters and action that spans the entire world and maybe invokes some other dimensions. I, I don't know. It, it's pretty... It's, it's out there, to say the least. But the whole narrative is anchored by a very straightforward story of a young epileptic girl who finds a little cat in Los Angeles, and this cat may or may not be evil. The book is mind-fuckingly ambitious and smart and exciting. I absolutely love it. It's legitimately made for one of the most rewarding and fascinating reading experiences of my entire life, and it appears to have recently been cancelled. Or paused, maybe. Paused is the word that the publisher is going with for now. The folks at Pantheon, uh, the familiar's publisher, apparently determined that sales of the book weren't really what they should be. The suggestion was that the numbers would be reappraised after some unspecified period of time, and presumably after that, some decision would be made about the familiar's fate. But that break, that pause, has been going on for about two years now, and it's being punctuated this November with a new book by Danielewski. But that new book isn't the long-anticipated and allegedly already completed sixth volume of The Familiar. Instead, it's a children's book, sweet and swift and colorful, and it's as heavy on your heart as it is on your head, depending on how you want to read it. Hello, booktube. Uh, let's see here. View from the bar? Yes. Uh, what what about the idea of a big novel? What does it do to the psyche of a novelist? Is there something writer? Is it something writers should strive for? Does it damage them, etc., etc.? The gist of the question to me seems to be: Is there any actual merit in such a book, either for the reader or for the writer? For the writer, there might be. For the reader, I've almost never read a book that long that warranted it. The ones that do warranted in spades, but most of the ones that I've read, like for instance, the aforementioned Neil Stevenson, likes to write books that big, and they never warrant the space. I'm okay with a book being a thousand pages long, 
if I never get the sense that the author is going for that, <laughs> if I get the sense at any point that the author is going for length, then the author is doing something wrong. That was Steve Donahue, you just heard, the, U- the YouTuber and book critic that I dig so much. And let me actually just go back to talking about him for a minute. Steve has been a book critic for a long time. There's, there's a Leonard Cohen song where the singer is talking to his lover about their affair, and he describes it by saying, the deal has been dirty since dirty began. And that, that kind of describes Steve. D- dirty since dirty began, sure. He, um, I wouldn't say he's a glowing portrait of, of hygiene, but the guy's also been bookish since bookish began. He knows what he's doing as a critic, and refreshingly, he's as quick to sing about something like Ovid's Metamorphoses or The Greatest Works of Tolstoy as he is to sing about a great new book by... Steve Alton, the author of his beloved Meg series about giant prehistoric school bus-sized sharks that rise up from the deepest part of the ocean, the Mariana Trench, to terrorize the modern world. The only thing I remember clearly from that first Meg book, incidentally, was a remark from its scientist protagonist about how if you if you went on a boat out to the deepest part of the Mariana Trench and you dropped a one-pound stone into the water, it would take over an hour for that stone to hit the bottom. But anyways... Uh, Steve, as I suggested, is as studied, as seasoned, as incisive a critic as you're ever likely to meet in a long pair of lives, but he doesn't step on anyone's book opinions. He's an advocate for reading, and while he's also obviously going to encourage people to read what he believes to be the best books, he's generally pretty glad to just see a book in your hands. He's got this trademark flustered double huff laugh that he does when he finds you praising something that he thinks is trashy. He smears his hand down his face while shaking his head, and then he blinks a few times as they're trying to believe that you're actually going to leave the house with your hair like that. And then he sighs and says, okay, well... So even though Steve thinks that Mark Danielewski's plan to write a 27-volume novel was totally asinine and unsustainable, a travesty, one might say, a travesty of a mockery of a sham, of a mockery of a travesty of two mockeries of sham, do you realize there's not a single homosexual on that jury? But anyways, Steve nonetheless, despite feeling that way, scored me an advanced copy of that fifth and possibly final volume of Danielewski's series my beloved Redwood. But because he made so clear to me his impression that these books aren't worth my time, after all, in a world with seven Meg novels, one has to be discriminating with one's time, I started reading and rereading Danielewski's Familiar with a kind of spectral Steve sense. Suddenly, I had an eye out for the kinds of things that Steve would say are lame, or just bad. The kinds of things that probably lots of conventional readers might say are lame or bad about these books. And, and boy, did I find them. The Familiar has lots of these strenuously philosophized little snippets of prose, lyrical passages that I think kind of try to sound a little more profound than they actually are. I started thinking at some point, what, what if these books are bad? And it was so weird, because here I was actively enjoying these books, but simultaneously asking myself in an anxious way if they were quote-unquote bad. You, it, I, it, I was talking about it to myself as if I were like halfway through a meal before learning that it was assembled out of like leftovers from the trash, sort of like setting my cutlery down in a slow, dramatic way. But unlike inadvertently eating a meal of trash, I mean... I wasn't at risk of being poisoned by reading these books. I wasn't, like, inhabiting a structure that might collapse on me. I was reading a book and enjoying it, enjoying it a lot. Good or bad, literary or not, I was happy to have it open in my lap. And I'm sad to think that it might be over. Steve's verdict about the familiar put a cloud over my reading of it, but he wouldn't have sent me the book if he really thought it was pernicious. All he was doing was voicing his opinion, and he sent me the book because, as he has suggested between the lines and sometimes in the lines of his videos, 
Every reader walks their own path. A serious reader comes to the good stuff by their own unique route of lesser books. Or if not lesser, just different. What I'm still on the fence about regarding the familiar is this. Is it one of the great books or just another few bricks on this reader's path toward finding them? One of the things Steve is teaching me, and Danielewski for that matter, is to have a thicker spine as a reader, to go about freely enjoying whatever I want, but to acknowledge things for what they are. I don't mean to suggest that the familiar is trash or schlock, but it is so much fun and yet it's also so layered and lends itself to such a deep reading that I sometimes go through it and like I'll find a kernel of what feels like profundity and I ask myself, is this profundity? Am I only seeing profundity because I want there to be profundity? And is there even a difference between the profundity that the author planted versus the profundity that you personally find there? Like I remember, for instance, my dad, who's a really smart guy, he became obsessed with the scene in fucking Van Helsing, of all things, the, the action horror movie with Hugh Grant from like 2004. There's a scene where Igor is tormenting the Frankenstein monster with a cattle prod and or maybe it's the wolfman. But anyways, when Dracula calls it off and he says, "Igor, why do you why do you torment that creature?" Igor kind of shuffles up to him and shrugs and says, "It's what I do." And my dad thought that that was like the most profound shit in the world, the idea, you know, that we bend ourselves into all these knots trying to understand the senseless cruelty that some people are capable of enacting, when really then, if you just sort of corner them and say, hey, why'd you do that? They just kind of shrug. It's what they do. Which I guess is another great thing about the familiar, is that it's something to fight with. Is it as good as it seems? Is it as bad as it seems? Or is it maybe something that just hits every reader in a way that's too personal to categorize? From KCRW and KCRW.com, I'm Michael Silverblatt, this is Bookworm, and today my guest is Mark Z. Danielewski. Um, we're here to celebrate the completion of the fifth volume of his serial novel, The Familiar. I think it's in part an exploration of what possession is, of how we come to possess something or how we are possessed by something. And despite what the commercial environment is like in which we live, it's a slow process. It's a messy process. It's complicated. And just because you meet someone or you save something or you participate in something doesn't mean quite that you have become entangled with it. And I think what we find in volume five is what is at stake and what are the consequences of when you become part of something and that part actually claims you. And now for a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's episode of Thousand Movie Project Podcast is brought to you by the legless man on Brickell Avenue in Miami, Florida, who wheels his way through the malls and along the sidewalks with the same big smile every day and with a big yellow sign mounted on a pike behind his chair that says in big blue letters, quote, even without legs, life is good. And so the fate of Mark Danielewski's The Familiar is up in the air. 
His new book is called The Little Blue Kite, and when I reached out to his publicist, citing the fact that I write occasionally for Steve Donahue's intergalactically celebrated literary journal, Open Letters Review, she was kind enough to send me an early copy. The book comes out in November, so I won't be reviewing it for another couple months, but since my first impressions of the book are still fresh, and because that book is picking at some of the brain scabs I've still got festering since The Familiar was put on pause, I wanted to riff on at least some of the ideas that Danielewski's forthcoming book brought to mind. Maybe not explicitly, but just because it rings a personal bell. And mainly one of those themes is dedication. Whether it's a person's dedication to a craft or a partner or a child or a job, any serious commitment comes with a certain forsaking of other opportunities. Let's look back at Steve, for example. He's about as jolly a Boston Irish Catholic as you'll ever meet. He seldom rants about more than one thing at a time. And he makes remarks now and then about what goes into his commitment to the world of letters. You see, Steve's goal is to be totally caught up with the publishing world. Tuesday by Tuesday, his commitment is to guiding readers through the deluge of new releases so that they can find the good stuff. This means that he reads for eight, sometimes ten hours a day. And reading so often, he's gotten quicker and quicker at it, so that he now reads upwards of a hundred pages an hour. Ten hours of that each day, all year, means that he's reading three, four, five books a day, means that he's reading upwards of a thousand books a year, but that also means that he does very little else. Which, you know, if, if you're committed to something with which you are already just naturally, blissfully obsessed, then it, that's a leap that you can probably make with relative ease. In order to write a 27-volume novel, like Danielewski, I imagine you've got to be pretty obsessed with it. Danielewski had been working on The Familiar for 10 years before Volume 1 even hit shelves. He kept himself to this monastic routine of waking up at 5 a.m., working out, eating breakfast, and then sitting down in his office and writing straight through until dinner. And he clearly had a good time with it. I can't imagine anybody could, you know, independently soldier through a 10-year project that's anything less than pleasant. He did all of this work for such a long time until finally, finally, Volume 1 is released in 2014. It's called One Rainy Day in May, and it's a hoot. Kind of difficult, the first volume, but it, it eases up. The whole, a whole reading group forms on Facebook, and the conversation is avid, and there's a second volume, and a third, and a fourth, and a fifth, and meanwhile, Danielewski's working nonstop, and he's traveling the world to promote the book, and he's newly married, and he's doing all this shit at once, and then, suddenly, the books weren't being published anymore. The series is on pause. There were no more deadlines by which to structure his days, and Danielewski hasn't said too much about that publicly, but I remember he did a private Facebook Q&A for the reading group um, after the pausing, and um, when somebody asked him how he was doing, he described his headspace as occupying, quote, striations of grief. So what I'm wondering about is what happens to a person when they make that freefall commitment into an obsession. They ride the tide of it for over a decade, and then, suddenly, the obsession remains, but the outlet for that obsession is gone. Did Mark Danielewski just stop writing these books? How could he have just stopped, having lived in such a strident routine with them for over a decade? The familiar must have become, in those years, his entire world, and he was working on it long enough that the outside world was probably a very strange new place to suddenly have to spend lots of time in. Here are some things that happened in Danielewski's life after the familiar was put on pause. He had his first kid, a little girl. He made some vague remarks on Facebook about maybe writing for television. And then he wrote a children's book about letting things go. Uh, but um, there's another kind of poem that can be addressed to someone who's no longer alive, it, it, aside from the, you know, the, the, the heat of grief. And that's what I think this poem is, which is a wish you were here poem, uh, which is an element I, I know that... 
I know that a lot of you have probably never experienced actual grief. I don't mean, you know, you're, you're four and you lose grandma who's 150 and, and you hadn't seen in years. I mean, where you lose someone who meant everything to you, someone who, when you, they were alive and they were meaning everything to you and you looked ahead to the possibility of losing them, you honestly said to yourself in quiet without melodrama or histrionics for an audience, I cannot survive that loss. Uh, you do survive, but what you experience when that happens is grief, deep, deep grief, uh, a, a, a loss that changes the topography of your whole inner world. Uh, and when the firestorms of that have subsided, when they, they can come back, those firestorms, they can come back without any warning at all. They won't possess you the way they do at the beginning, but they can arise out of nowhere and totally incapacitate you in the middle of broad daylight, in the middle of a working happy day. Uh, but for the most part, they subside. And when they do, something else tends to take their place. And in a way, I'm not sure that it's not worse. It's just, it's, it doesn't have poems written to it, usually. I think this might be such a poem. And that's a wishing you were here. The pain of the ripping away, the pain of the loss, yes, all that is very dramatic. It's, it, it's horrible to feel, horrible to remember. And it can reshape you, like a, a tidal wave reshapes a shoreline. But something far more low-key and also far more persistent is just wishing that the person were still around. It, you didn't you didn't love them for yourself. You love them because of them. And you encounter in a week or in a month or sometimes every day a, a little detail that you either want to talk to them about or that you know they would want to talk about and they're not here anymore and they're never going to be here again. So you've got this phantom reflex out of nowhere that, that uh, I, I feel all the time. It happens at least once a day uh, that I feel that way. Uh, for somebody or other. <laughs> I, I am surrounded uh, at all times by a big, enormous crowd of ghost dogs, for instance, but also humans as well. Uh, I've lost editors, I've lost uh, friends, uh, colleagues, and I think that might be what this poem is, is talking about. There, isn't so, there doesn't seem to be so much grief in this poem as Gee, if you were still here, I wouldn't be ambivalent all the time. You, I think the the you, the person address, the poem's addressed to, helped the narrator not to be ambivalent. I could easily see, for instance, a whole bunch of people writing a poem like that about, for instance, a figure like Christopher Hitchens, where you warned us that that this was coming, and if you were still here, it would be easier to feel one way or another about it, uh, polarizing in a good way, I guess. Uh, I liked it. I loved the, uh, there were a couple of buried rhymes in there that I detected. I, I went through it a second time, and uh, I think one of the reasons that it reads so easily is because there are, there are... What is a kite? It's a very pretty, delicate thing that you hold on to while the elements whip it around here and there, pulling it up toward the sky, and you try to hang on to it, right? You try to steer it in some general direction, even though beyond a certain altitude, it, it seems to have a mind of its own. But imagine if you were that kite, soaring up towards so much beauty and enjoying so much perspective. Would you want to be tethered to the earth? Would you not maybe want to be let go and permitted to soar freely? Now look down toward the person holding tight to that kite. Does he want to let that kite go? Letting go of something is a natural part of creation. 
you're not going to be around to guide your creative project forever. The filmmaker Kevin Smith just waxed pretty eloquent about this in respect to the forthcoming release of his latest movie, Jay and Silent Bob Reboot. He says that for the past two and a half years, it's been an invaluable toy for him, tinkering with the script for so many months, 12 drafts in a row, getting in touch with his old friends, the cast. Then he had the exalted experience of going out into the field with all of his friends and castmates and shooting the thing. And then he got to edit the picture together, piece by piece, over so many mornings. He had to wait for the CGI work, he had to wait for the score to be mixed. Then he got to integrate all those things and see, you know, his creation in a new light. He would host small private screenings, and then he would edit, edit the movie further still, on the basis of the audience responses. Jane Silent Bob Reboot, his newest movie, was this thing that he was slowly shepherding into existence. And so he says now, understandably, that there's something bittersweet about suddenly not having his big project around. The movie is in the can. He's now almost got to reconstruct his life around the void that is left by the project's completion. There is some solace to be had, he says, in knowing at least that he, he finished it. He brought the thing to life, and he did it on his terms. But still, there's a little bit of grief. And when you look from that perspective back over to Danielewski, we realize he didn't even have that last bit of solace. The thing to which he devoted so many years of his life is not complete. Then again, we can say on a sort of bright side that it's only when the final punctuation mark is there that you've got a chance to appreciate the thing as a whole. Only then do you get to embark on the entirely new process, not of creating the thing, but of exploring it. You could have studied The Sopranos, for example, all you liked as it unfolded over the course of seven years. You could have written essays about it, and you could have made big claims, but it wasn't until that closing shot of the final episode that you could really go back and see what was going on. See what was the real nature of this thing that consumed you for so many years. What does it finally amount to? And maybe, for a creator, the process of that revision, that study of their own completed or discontinued project, is where they find the seeds for the next one. I'm Michael Silverblatt, this is Bookworm, and I'm talking with Mark Danielewski about his collection of books, The Familiar. Now, as I understand it, you've been writing for 12 hours a day, every day, for years, working on this book. Tell me about that. Well, it started uh, in 2006, so here we are in 2017. Uh, an enormous amount of work, you know, dedication. Uh, obviously, as, as anyone knows with big projects, it's, it's, it's the love for something that carries you through it. And... Uh, <laughs> When user IC33J wrote a question on Ask Reddit wondering, quote, what's the difference between being obsessed with somebody and being in love with them? They got this answer by the user T-Ball Tay. Quote, I think being obsessed with someone generally implies that you've overlooked all of their flaws and you idolize them as a perfect partner. Being in love with someone means you recognize someone's flaws but care for them in spite of those flaws. End quote. Let me not be vague about my impression of Danielewski's forthcoming book. It's a pleasant thing, but it reads like an elegy. If you knew nothing of this author, and you read the book, and then I told you that it was written by a man who had just lost a child, as, as bleak as that sounds, you would probably look back at the book, rub your chin for a minute, and then say, 
Yeah, I see that. Danielewski knew when he started The Familiar that its survival was contingent on whether or not volumes were selling. He had to make it titillating. He had to make it propulsive and engaging. This couldn't be some abstruse one-off novel. He would mention at every public appearance that the series could be canceled at any moment for any reason. He invested a decade of his life into this project before even releasing the first of its 27 parts. He staked a decade of his creative energy on a project that ran the risk of being canceled before even a sizable portion of it could be shared, before a sizable portion of it could be realized. But maybe that is just inevitable. Let's look at Kevin Smith again. He was talking recently about art pieces that fail and getting back up from failure. And he referred in that conversation to his last movie, Yoga Hosiers, which, yeah, was a bit of a, a miss or a mess, whatever you want to call it. But he says that while he was reeling from the failure of that movie, he would sometimes be compelled to think, fuck, I shouldn't have done that. Why did I make that movie? On and on. But then, in moments of clarity, he was able to reason with himself. And he would look back and say, listen, I had the resources to make that movie. I really wanted to make that movie. And I only had a particular window of time in which to do it. If I hadn't made Yoga Hosiers, I would have spent the rest of my life wondering what it could have been. And it would have eaten me alive. So, without getting too flighty about it, it does seem like when the big idea hits you, as an artist, you've almost got no choice but to pursue it. You either go with it, or spend the rest of your life in the shadow of what might have been. Or so the Thousand Movie Project guy tells himself. <laughs> we'll start and we'll see if we can get through it without any rants, just with a literary discussion. Uh, Unfortunately, the chances of that happening are narrowed significantly by the first question, which is, how do you define literary fiction? <laughs> uh, I have watched other people do this tag, and I have seen their definitions, uh, mostly involving uh, contemporary literature that stresses the beauty or complexity of language over plot and structure. Uh, and I jotted down some notes for my own definition of literary fiction. Uh, it is a novel dealing either with upper-middle-class Connecticut divorce or the American immigrant experience, particularly the Nigerian immigrant experience, and particularly a couple of different cities and villages in Nigeria immigrant experience. <laughs> it is uh, a book that has been written sometime in the last four years by an author who is no older than 45, and who is under no circumstances whatsoever a heterosexual man. Uh, and in all cases, the end result will be used by the world's most cloistered readers to feel not only unapologetic about only reading the smallest tiny sliver of one genre of one kind of literature, but also feeling snooty and superior about it. But believe me, when it comes to contemporary literary fiction, the, its foremost adherents, its foremost devotees, are the most blinkered and sheltered and inexperienced readers anywhere in the world. They, they have sliced out a, a, a hair-thin little fracture of the Republic of Letters, and that is where they feel comfortable. And that would be fine. I wouldn't actually have much criticism of that. I would feel sorry for those people, of course, but I wouldn't have much criticism of it, much less the scorn that you may be detecting in my voice, if they didn't then turn around and condescend on everybody else, but they do. Instead of saying, yeah, yeah, like for instance, I used to know, uh, I used to know a diehard reader who in, in his 
in his professional life, he did all sorts of professional related reading. But in his personal life, he did only one kind of reading. That's all he did. He read disposable murder mysteries. And he would literally dispose of them. He would just toss them off the boat or off the side of the bed. And a year would go by, the stereotypical thing with genre readers, a year would go by, he would pick up one that he'd already read, and he wouldn't realize that he'd already read it until he was halfway through it. And he loved it, and I had no problem with that whatsoever. And when you talk to him about it, the first thing he would do was get a little bashful and maybe offer a quasi-apology. I know, I know I'm, I'm a grown man, but I love these things. And I really don't have... I have very limited reading time for non-professional stuff, and I like to fill it with the stuff I love. I know I should be reading, you know, the latest serious fiction or the latest work of popular philosophy, but this is what I like. Offered with a good-natured apology. And, of course, it's not a groveling apology. None of us should apologize for our reading. But it was meant mainly as a doff of the hat to the fact that, look, I know that my free time personal reading is extremely narrow. I know that, and I'm not trying to defend that. That's fine. And the days of that are over. They're absolutely gone. In the 21st century especially, young readers especially, under the age of 30 especially, in other words, the all-knowing among us, absolutely refuse to do that. In fact, they do the inverse. When you point out, if you point out, that they only read slim, wanly written novels about upper-middle-class Connecticut divorce or the Nigerian immigrant experience written by authors who are under 45 and are heavily prominent on social media, and you maybe indicate in your description that maybe that's a little narrow in terms of reading, their response is not what my old friend's response was. Instead, it's the exact opposite. It's, that's the only thing worth reading. And they absolutely don't know that. They are less able to know that than any other reader in the world, including schoolchildren. When I met Mark C. Danielewski at a signing in Coral Gables, and at Books and Books, I asked if he would sign not just my copy of the familiar Volume 4, which he was there to promote, but also this big spiral notebook in which I had just started writing essays for something that I was tentatively calling Thousand Movie Project. On the front page of the spiral notebook was a thick divider-type sheet, I think you call it Manila, on which I'd drawn up a two-column list of the first 60 movies for Thousand Movie Project. Most of them, most of those titles were crossed off, but I hadn't launched the website yet. I asked him if he would slash his signature Z across these movie titles, the entire page. Uh, I told him that his dedication to such a huge project as The Familiar the stuff that I had read about how much discipline he employed in his approach, that was all, it was just such a huge part of my inspiration for embarking on a huge creative project of my own. I told him the truth, which is that Thousand Movie Project would most likely not have happened if I was not myself at that moment following along with the familiar. But Danny Levski said that he didn't feel comfortable slashing his own initials across my work. So he pulled back the little slip on that title page, the, that little pocket where you could tuck some loose pages, and he instead jotted his signature there, hidden on the front page of my biggest creative project ever. Right there, on the front page, where nobody knows to find it but me. If The Familiar, this sprawling 27-volume novel, is the great creative calling of Danielewski's life, and if he has delivered himself to that project wholeheartedly for a decade now, only to find that suddenly his publisher has cut him off from it, well, what happens to those creative juices? If they suddenly have no outlet, do they turn to a boil? Do they sort of eat through the floor of his psyche? And if so, how does that corrosion manifest? D does, does the creative energy assume some other shape? 
When he was asked at a Q&A about what he does with creative ideas that come to him now that aren't for the familiar, you know, does he store them away? Does he write short stories? Does he ignore them? Danielewski smiled, so genuinely delighted, and he said, I get ideas all the time, and they're all for the familiar. It was my intention, beginning with the last episode, to have a segment at the end where I talk off the cuff about whatever's going on. I've got tonsillitis though and can barely speak. I woke up with my tonsils feeling like baseballs and I thought it'd be a good idea to drink some of this really cold, thick, tasty pineapple nectar I bought at the grocery a couple days ago. And for a little while, it was a good idea. But then I realized that the nectar was making me salivate like a motherfucker, And so, even long after I'd been drinking it, I had to keep swallowing, which hurts more and fucking more each time. Good lord. How was I this stupid? It hurts so much. I don't wanna be melodramatic about it, but good fucking lord. Sweet Jesus. No me gusto. Jesus Christo, por que me jodas. The sweet nectar touched my lips and then soothed my throat temporarily and I thought, Oh wow, this is so nice, I should do this more often. And so I continued, and continued. And then my throat kept saying, Moss poor favor. Moss poor favor. And I said, Oh no. Not good. Oh please stop. This is quite painful. Pineapple nectar was a bad choice. What have I done? Then I trekked over here to Passion del Cielo to finish editing the episode and when I approached the counter I thought, oh thank god, I can get some hot tea to soothe my afflicted tonsils. But the baristas had apparently seen me approaching through the window from a long ways off and, since I'm a regular who orders the exact same thing for dozens of mornings in a row, they already had a shot of Cuban espresso prepared for me. I didn't have the heart to refuse it. So I took the espresso to my table and thought, well this too is warm. Perhaps it will be just as soothing. It was way too hot though so I let it sit for a minute. Then I got immersed in editing the podcast. When I finally realized it was there beside me and took a sip the espresso had settled to room temperature. When the tepid acid Cuban bean water hit my beleaguered tonsils I thought, oh no. Oh god. What have I done? Medulo. Medulo mucho. Jesus Cristo, por que me has abandonado. This is painful. So painful. Tepid acid Cuban bean water was a bad choice. Anyway. Thank you for listening to this episode of Thousand Movie Project Podcast. While I continue to grunt and sweat under a weary life I'll be thinking of you. Gracias, papo. Besame mucho. Uh, this is Paul Strathern. This is The Borgias, his new book about the Borgias. Uh, corruption, incest, ruthless megalomania, avarice, and vicious cruelty all have been associated with their name, and yet, paradoxically, this family lived when the Renaissance was coming into its full flowering in Italy. Examples of infamy flourished alongside some of the finest art produced in Western history. 
Uh, but this is one of several paradoxes associated with the Borgia family, which produced corrupt popes, depraved princes, and poisoners, and even a saint. Oh, uh, these paradoxes, which so characterize the Borgias, have seldom been examined in great detail. <laughs> yes, yes, I barely heard of this family. <laughs> <laughs> yes, these things have seldom been examined in great detail. I, I, it's about time somebody wrote a Borgia book. <laughs> You've been listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and to read our blog posts every day at www.thousandmovieproject.com. And remember, while you're at it, to have a nice day.